Welcome to the Ottawa Business Journal's live broadcast of what can happen when you don't have a carefully contracted contract. I'm Michael Kern from the Ottawa Business Journal. Thanks for joining us today. It's back to school season, it's back to work season, and it's back to live broadcast from OBJ and our partners. Uh, we've got hundreds of live viewers across various platforms, including uh, YouTube, LinkedIn, uh, Twitter, now called X and Facebook. And we've got a great show lined up for you today. And that's because we're talking about something that's a real ongoing challenge for employers. I'm talking about staying on top of employment law. Of course, uh, employment law is constantly evolving based on case law that influences the rules around how we work with our uh, teams. Today, we have our friends from Eamon Harnden, a boutique law firm based here in Ottawa that supports many of the city's best known organizations with their employment and labor law. Uh, Eamon Harnden is back today to review three recent cases and help keep your employment contracts up to date, which is a really important thing. I'd like to introduce our first guest. Uh, he Here is Paul Eamon, a partner with Eamon Harnden. Welcome, Paul. Okay, uh, nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here, Paul. I'm looking forward to this. And we have an associate from Eamon Harnden, Zoriana Priadka, a recent addition to the firm. Welcome, Zoriana. Thanks. Thanks for having us. You're the new kid on the block. That's right. That's right. So <laughs> okay. new to the firm, but not quite new to the law. I know that, Mark. And, and you're going to demonstrate all, of course, the expertise you bring to the table. Um, Paul, we're going to start with you just by giving us a little bit of a preview at a high level of what we're talking about today. Sure. Uh, thanks a lot. So as I've seen throughout my career, and as many of you are probably uh, know very well, employment law is constantly evolving, and, and it's not always easy to, to stay up to date on, on the changes that are occurring. Um, although it can be challenging, it, it's also really important that you make an effort to stay on top of those changes because the changes in the legal landscape can really have significant and, and costly consequences for employers. Uh, one particular aspect of employment law where this is particularly true is, is employment contracts. So, for example, when the law changes, uh, provisions within employment contracts or even entire employment agreements may become unenforceable. Uh, so today we're going to be talking about three uh, recent cases of uh, the Ontario Court of Appeal uh, that include some important lessons and takeaways for employers, especially with respect to contracts. So uh, in, on in Ontario and, and throughout Canada, employment law is sort of made up of two branches. It's made up of uh, legislation like the Employment Standards Act, and then you have uh, the case law, which is often referred to as the common law. And, and in the common law, a principle called stare decisis must be followed, which means lower courts have to follow the decisions of higher courts. Uh, so that's why these these cases that we're going to cover are so very important because in Ontario uh, they are essentially the law now that that the Ontario Court of Appeal has made these decisions. That's an excellent explanation. Thank you, Paul. And Zorian, I wanted to check in with you. There, some might be listening to this and saying, "Well, isn't that a little academic? And how does that influence me as a CEO, business owner?" or director of HR, but there are real risks, like very real world risks here, right, Soriana? And those are, we'll see that in the three cases that we're talking about today, but absolutely, the difference in having an enforceable contract that you can rely on on termination 
the difference can be devastating if you don't have one that has termination provisions that can be enforced. So in Ontario, easiest example is you have a contract that limits the employee's entitlements to just the statutory ESA minimums. The difference can be something like giving them a few weeks on termination versus giving them something like two years worth of pay on termination. So real world consequences, it's very important to have contracts that are binding, enforceable, valid, all of those things. A few uh, weeks, a couple of years, we just got everybody's attention. <laughs> yeah, huge difference, huge yeah. difference. Yeah, all right. So listen, uh, as uh, as uh, uh, advertised, we're going to go through three cases here and I'm going to give everybody a, a quick uh, preview of our agenda. In case number one, uh, we're going to be looking at the case of the missing termination clause. It sounds like a murder mystery to me. In uh, case number two, how changing job duties made a termination clause unenforceable. And in case number three, what is consideration and why you need it to renegotiate a contract? Uh, just a reminder to our live viewers that sometime around 1225 Eastern, we'll be going to you with your questions. So I'm sure as you're listening to Paul and Zoriana, you'll have all these things uh, popping up into your head, whether you're on YouTube or LinkedIn, for example, you can use those platforms to ask questions and we'll get it here in our studio. So sometime again, around 1225, I'll be moderating uh, a Q&A session with Paul and Zoriana. Well, let's get right down to business. Uh, case number one is Montessero versus Metro Freightliner Hamilton, Inc. And uh, Zoriana, you're going to kick things off. Go ahead. So this is a, uh, a fairly interesting case. It actually revolves around Mr. Monteroso. He was an independent contractor. He provided services under his company called called uh, Truck Leasing Canada. So he contracted with Metro Freightliner Hamilton and a few other companies to provide these services under his own company. And the interesting part of this case is that the agreement that he entered into was a fairly long fixed term contract. So it was for 72 months, fixed term, entered into this agreement. Couple months in, Metro Freightliner decides, you know what, it's not working out, we wanna terminate this agreement. The issue is that in this contract, there was nothing that allowed the company to terminate the 72 months contract early. There was no termination provision, nothing about what happens if, you know, a few months in they wanted to uh, end the agreement. There was no provision that allowed them to do so or stipulate what happens if it happens. And that was fatal for the uh, this case. So, of course, Metro Freightliner says a couple of months in, look, it's not working out. Mr. Monteroso says... Nope, you can't do that. He decides to sue and asks the court to award the remainder of the contract. So at the time, there was 65 months of pay that was remaining under this contract. He decided to pursue the uh, company for that amount. And at the trial level, so this was a court of appeal decision that we're looking at, but at the trial level, the judge found that yes, there's nothing in this contract that allows the company to end or terminate the contract early. Without that termination provision, you're just simply not allowed to do it. The company therefore owes the remaining 65 months, which came to about, it was over a half a million plus 80. So again, potentially devastating consequences for not having a good enforceable contract. The trial judge made it specifically clear that without that termination provision, it's very clear and un unambiguous that 72 months is what was contracted for. And that's the remaining of that is what is owing. Of course, Metro Freightliner Hamilton decided to appeal. They were arguing a few um, a few things, but 
they were essentially pointing to some email exchanges before the contract was signed that seemed to imply something that said that there would have been, you know, Mr. Monterosa would be paid up to the last day of active service. And they were pointing to these emails to say, look, he obviously knew 72 months may not be guaranteed. If we're talking about active service, that would imply we can end it early. Maybe there's nothing contractually in there in terms of a provision or an article, but he knew what he, he, he knew that maybe we could end this early. And the Court of Appeals said, essentially too bad. If it's not in the contract, it's not stipulated. There's nothing um, that we're going to be looking at in terms of the context of how the contract was drafted. And they actually pointed to the entire agreement clause in the contract, which said if it's not in the contract, if it's not there, absent any sort of fraud or misrepresentation, we're, we're not looking at any sort of context. It has to be in the agreement if you're going to be relying on an early termination. Um, beyond that, an interesting element in this case is that at the trial level, the judge found that uh, normally when contracts or normally when a termination provision is, uh, when a termination occurs, employees generally have a duty to mitigate their damages. And what that means is that they have to make reasonable efforts, look for other work to reduce uh, the amounts owing to them under a contract. The caveat here is with an employee who's terminated on a fixed-term contract, they don't have that duty unless it's stipulated in the contract. And in this decision, we're looking at an independent contractor. What's interesting is that the Court of Appeals said, no, there's there's nothing that says independent contractors, um, you know, when it comes to duty to mitigate, independent contractors on a fixed term, they still do need to mitigate. So that's kind of an interesting element of this case, but it didn't make a difference in the end. So the Court of Appeals said, sure, he had to mitigate by looking for other work, but there's no evidence he failed in that duty. So the employer didn't present any evidence of here's this job, here's this work that he could have um, he could have done to mitigate the losses. They essentially said, we accept Mr. Monoroso's evidence that he made reasonable efforts, he couldn't find other work, so therefore the full 65 months is owing. So in terms of why this case is important and, and what it changes, most important thing is if you're gonna have a fixed term contract, make sure you have enforceable early termination provisions. Otherwise you're gonna be on the hook for the remaining, uh, re whatever compensation is under that contract. Um, and the second thing is this case confirms independent contractors do have to mitigate their damages, even if it's a fixed contract. Um, and lastly, if you were going to be arguing an employer that this individual failed in their duty to mitigate, make sure you have the evidence to show that. You need to actually say, here's this, this job, here's this contract that they could have uh, entered into to you know, obtain other uh, payments that would be a way to reduce the amounts owing. Otherwise, it's not, gonna, it's not gonna fly in court, essentially. The judge will need to see evidence of failure for duty to mitigate. So that about wraps up that first case. And what a first case, Oriana. You know, I think business owners, entrepreneurs, managers have always been told, make sure if you're making someone an employment offer, contract offer, to have it reviewed by a lawyer. But this is such a powerful case. I mean, my goodness, to have the uh, to have an oversight of not having an early uh, termination clause, uh, you know, hit a company's bottom line to the tune of half million dollars, that is a painful penalty to pay. Um, you know, by simply not referring to a lawyer. I think it's fair to say, Zoriana, if, if an employment lawyer had looked at this, they would have very easily spotted the fact that the termination clause was missing. Absolutely. 
that was uh, definitely fatal in this case. And it's unfortunate because again, the consequences were so, so huge, half a million dollars, yeah. 65 months of pay just because you missed a provision in a contract. Yeah. What, what, a, what a way to grab everyone's attention here. And, and of course, you know, half a million dollars for a small company, and I'm not speaking to the size of Metro Freightline or Hamilton, but for a small company, that could be literally ruin the company's finances, uh, you know, make them insolvent, so on and so forth. Wow. What a, what a great way to uh, uh, debut. And we got another a great case coming up with Paul. Uh, before Paul presents, I just want to remind everyone that there's a whole bunch of people active on our comment section. So keep on asking your, your questions. I'm sure they will. Um, your questions will pop to mind as, as the pre presentation's happening. Put them in early and then we'll sift uh, through, you and, uh, through them and a greater chance of uh, getting your question on screen and answered by either Paul or Zoriana in just a few minutes. All right, Paul, it's time for case number two. It's Celestini versus Shop Logics. And the key thing to focus on here for our audience is how a changing job duties, how changing job duties made a termination clause unenforceable. Tell us more, Paul. Well, yeah, this this case is Celestini versus Shop Logic, and the the principle that's important to take out of here it's got a very fancy name. It's it's the changed substratum uh, principle at common law, and and that's that's sort of what was at the core of the decision in this case, and we'll come to that a little bit more. But the result here you'll see was was huge liability to an employer. Uh, on, on the basis that the substratum of the contract that was initially in, entered into changed. And because of that, the termination provisions in the contract were held to be unenforceable by, by uh, the court at the first level and, and the court of appeal. Uh, so with respect to this case, Mr. Celestini was a co-founder and former CEO of ShopLogic. In 2005, a venture capital firm purchased shares in ShopLogic from its founders, including Mr. Celestini. At that time, Mr. Celestini stepped down from his position as CEO, and he assumed the position of Chief Technology Officer, CTO, of the company, signing a written employment contract to that effect. The contract he entered into at that time, amongst other things, stipulated that if his employment was terminated without cause, he'd be provided with one month's written notice, as well as his base salary and group health insurance for 12 months. And he'd also be entitled to a prorated payment on account of his annual bonus. And this was to settle all claims that he would have with respect to his employment or, or the termination thereof. Fast forward 12 years and ShopLogic terminated Mr. Celestini's employment without cause. They relied on the contract. They paid him out in accordance with the deal that they thought they had in place. Um, but Mr. Celestini wasn't happy with that. He was of the view that the termination provision had become unenforceable as a result of the changed substratum uh, doctrine that I was referring to. And to get in a little more detail, that, that common law doctrine. Uh, states that provisions in a written employment contract that purport to limit the amounts payable to a dismissed employee may be unenforceable where there have been fundamental expansions in the employee's responsibilities 
after the employment contract was made, such that the substratum of the contract has disappeared or substantially been eroded. Or it can be implied that the contract couldn't have been intended to apply in the circumstances where the employee ultimately was the role they ultimately held at the conclusion of their employment when it was terminated. So Mr. Celestini chose to challenge the terms of his contract and he sued ShopLogic. He was looking for a common law notice period um, of 18 months, so greater than the 12 months that was essentially provided for in the contract. Uh, on a motion of some on summary judgment, it was determined by the judge that the evidence showed that in 2005, the CTO role involved duties pertaining primarily to transfer of product and corporate knowledge within the company. So almost as if the plan was Mr. Celestini wouldn't be there long term. He, he was, you know, there was a sale. He would stay on for a while. Then, then he'd depart with his package. However, uh, significant changes to his compensation plan uh, were consistent with the fundamental and substantial changes to his role that became that began in 2008 under the direction of the new CEO. So turns out he didn't leave. He stayed for another 12 years. And starting in around 2008, he was given compensation increases as well as a substantially changed role. In particular, he took on new responsibilities such as managing important aspects of sales and marketing, directing managers and senior staff uh, who were assigned to report to him, traveling to pursue international sales and, and, and other important uh, responsibilities. As a result of that, the motion judge concluded that the substratum of the contract of employment disappeared and implicated the change substratum doctrine, which left the notice terms in his contract no longer enforceable. So the motion judge found that Mr. Celestini was entitled to common law reasonable notice of termination and awarded him 18 months compensation. This included uh, a total of $420,000 worth of damages. Uh, so this was on top of the, the essentially 12 months that he was already paid pursuant to his contract. And it included uh, car allowance payments, bonus payments, lost life insurance entitlements. So you could see the implications of not entering into a, a new contract, perhaps when they could have at some point in the relationship uh, turned out to be quite costly. So on appeal, uh, Logic challenged the, the, the motion judge's conclusions on the substratum principle. They argued that, that it was inappropriately applied and that they erred in finding that any changes in Mr. Celestini's duties were sufficient to engage the doctrine. Um, they, they argued that the judge should have found that the contract's termination provision continued to be enforced since ShopLogic had complied with it uh, at the time of termination. Uh, there was also an argument on appeal that it's kind of an aside for our purposes related to how much in bonus um, Mr. Celestini was entitled to, but uh, that's kind of an aside as the focus of this for us is the change substratum principle. So in response to 
stop logics argue, arguments, the Ontario Court of Appeal uh, concluded that that the arguments they made were were they were completely rejected. So, Shop Logic wanted to make the argument that in order for the doctrine to apply, there has to be fundamental changes that result from a promotion, and and that that just couldn't apply in a circumstance where this was an executive. So there wasn't really a promotion; there was just change duties, and the job title remained the same all the time. The Court of Appeal uh, rejected that and held that um, it wasn't it wasn't necessary for there to be a promotion or a change in job title in order for this principle to apply. Um, and secondly, uh, Shop Logic argued that the incremental changes in duties were not sufficient to invoke the principle. Uh, the Court of Appeal again rejected that, saying, first of all, the judge, this was a an issue of mixed fact and law, and the judge concluded on the facts before, before them that the incremental change did in fact amount to a fundamental change, and therefore the change substratum uh, principle applied in the circumstances. Um, so in the end, uh, the $400,000 plus uh, was still owing uh, to Mr. Celestini by Shop Logic, uh, and in fact, there was the, the little aside portion. Mr. Celestini ended up with with more in terms of his bonus entitlements uh, as a result of this appeal, and the the employer, of course, had to pay costs uh, because they pursued the appeal and lost. Uh, so, with respect to takeaways from this. Th this change substratum principle, uh, it doesn't arise all that often, um, but it has been part of uh, the common law in Ontario for, for several decades. And so it's important for employers to be aware of the existence of the doctrine and, and of the fact that it can be in some circumstances uh, a reason to, to oust the termination provisions and employment contracts uh, that they may otherwise seek to rely on. Um, the decision highlights that although contracts might have been very carefully crafted to include important clauses such as termination provisions, they have to be reviewed regularly uh, in light of changed circumstances, in this, which, is, which is the key point in this case, as well as, as changed law. Um, so it is not only new law, but also as this de decision illustrates, changed circumstances that should cause an employer to uh, consider whether they need to enter into a new employment contract. Uh, in this case, the inclusion of what's called an anti-obsolescence clause at the outset could have helped. And, and what that is, is a clause that says something along the lines of regardless of what position or held or duties uh, that the employee was responsible for at the conclusion of their employment, the termination clause would still apply. So that was missing from this contract. And additionally, it, it seems from the facts that there was increases in compensation, increases in duties. And if the employer had taken the opportunity to enter into a new employment contract with Mr. Celestini at some point in, in, in the employment relationship when duties were evolving, and compensation increasing, they could have put a new employment contract in place 
that would have had an enforceable uh, termination clause. So those were the the key aspects to take away from from this case. Yeah, very interesting, Paul. And and by the way, probably a story that is uh, that happens quite often in Ottawa's technology sector. I've often seen, you know, founders go to CEO and then back to a different uh, position. But I was just going to get you to reinforce that last point. So uh, very interesting facts. What what you would have recommended uh, to uh, to the company, uh, Shop Logics, is that at some point in that relationship that they would have written a new employment agreement. Is is and I I got the uh, the non obsolescence or or forgive me the word that you used, but your recommendation would have been you should have entered into a new employment contract. Yeah, I I mean, and Zoriana is going to be going to be speaking about consideration in the next case that we're going to be covering. Okay. So so I so I won't steal the thunder on that point, but okay. I think here here I like the contract was one that was written for someone who was part of the ownership group of a of, of a company that was that was purchased in a transaction. It was written seemingly with, with the idea that he wouldn't be there for twelve years. Right, he was going to leave shortly. Uh, thereafter, either on his own account or because they would let him go. But once his his duties started to evolve and he was clearly with the company and working towards its future, uh, and he was getting compensation increases as as a result of staying there over time, the the company should have realized, well, we should get a contract in place that reflects what he does for us now. Yeah, yeah, and that would have saved them. Uh, what Maybe happened? not four hundred thousand, but it would have saved them a good amount of money, and and at least they would have been more likely to be paying only what they thought they had to, as opposed to a surprise four hundred thousand more dollars. Yeah, so interesting. Again, so you know, a little bit of a lesson about contacting your employment lawyer here. If you're if you're managing someone, if someone's on the team, especially at a senior level, I presume, uh, and their job is significantly changing over a number of years good to check in with your employment lawyer and say, do we need to redefine this relationship and bring the, bring a document up to date? Wow. Um, listen, we're going to move right into number uh, three. And uh, it obviously very well planned here because we're going to talk about something called consideration. I don't know what that means. So I'm eager to hear um, what it uh, what it does mean, Zoriana, why it's so important. But the key point is, Zoriana, this, this, this term consideration can be used to renegotiate a contract so it does reply, uh, does, does speak to the second case, but take it out, take it away. We're going to talk about Gobberdan versus Knights of Columbus, says Oriana. Yes, and this is probably my favorite case that we're discussing today, just because it's so unfortunate, but also very timely. Um, and it's, it's such a great reminder of the importance of consideration when contracting. So as a, before I get into in the case and, and specifically what happened, if an employer wants to update a contract or amend it, add new provisions, um, they need to provide what's called consideration. And contract law 101 is that for a contract to have forms, you need to have an offer acceptance and that third element, consideration. Consideration can be anything like a raise, a signing bonus, some additional benefit, um, something of value that the employee receives that cannot just be continued employment. So if the employee is already working and you say, well, I want to update this contract, I'm going to 
add this new, uh, you know, update the termination provisions or add this new provision or what be it, you still need to give them something in exchange. Uh, easiest thing is signing bonus. Sometimes we see raises. If the employee gets a raise every year, that's a great chance to give them a new contract uh, with updated enforceable provisions. In this case, unfortunately, consideration was not uh, something that took place. So Goberdan versus Knights of Columbus. In this case, Goberdan was a field agent. He sold insurance through the defendant, Knights of Columbus. So when he was hired in 2011, you know, Knights of Columbus gave him a contract. Um, he signed that. And then years later, he signed a second contract in 2018 and a third contract in 2019. The, the trouble with those uh, two, the second and third contract, is that Knights of Columbus did not give him anything extra in exchange for him signing contract two and contract three. So no, no raise, no extra signing bonus, nothing um, other than just here, we're updating the contract. If you want to keep working here, you need to sign. And that's what became fatal in this case, where few months after that third contract, the company uh, Knights of Columbus decides, okay, uh, we are terminating this uh, contract effective end of April 2019. In response, Mr. Goberdan, even though he was a field agent, he decided, uh, actually, I was an employee and I, uh, I have certain entitlements under legislation as an employee, including termination pay, you know, et cetera. And he asked for all these things. And unfortunately, there's differences at law when someone's considered an employee versus a, an independent contractor. Independent contractor, that's much more like a commercial agreement. Uh, the idea is that they're on sort of a, a evil, even playing field with the employer when they're contracting versus employees who are allowed a lot of deference. They really are essentially given contracts, told to sign. They don't really negotiate so much. Uh, and they have certain minimum rights under legislation like the Employment Standards Act that goes to things like termination pay, severance, et cetera, minimum uh, wage requirements, et cetera. So interesting that this field agent made the argument, actually, I think I was an employee all these years. I want a package. He sued for wrongful dismissal. Uh, and an important thing to remember in this case is that it was a motion. It wasn't exactly a trial. So there was no, even though it went to the Court of Appeal, at the first instance, there was no uh, decision on was Mr. Goberdan, uh, you know, was he entitled to wrongful dismissal damages? Does he win his case? Really what happened in this case was the Knights of Columbus said, hold on, hold on. We're looking at contract number two and contract number three. And we see that there are, there's what's called an arbitration provision, which says that if there's ever a dispute in the contract that instead of going to court, we're going to opt for private arbitration. So when Mr. Goberdan decided to file a court claim to say, actually, I want a termination package, Knights of Columbus brought a, a motion, which is like a preliminary uh, hearing, to decide on the issue of, can he even do this? Can he sue us? Or do we have to go through private arbitration? So Knights of Columbus were saying contract two and contract three have these arbitration provisions that we're going to be saying should apply in this case. And unfortunately, what the motion decision uh, judge found was that, okay, looking at contract two and contract three, doesn't matter what's in them, they're not enforceable because Mr. Goberdan was never given any sort of consideration in exchange for signing. So forget the contract, doesn't matter what's in there, it's not valid, it's not enforceable, we're looking at contract number one, there's no arbitration provision in contract number one. So 
very uh, disappointing in this case because it could have been easily avoided. Uh, unfortunately, you know, that was the decision that the motion judge made. And they also made a, a comment that, you know, yes, he was an employee, not a contractor. He should have been given consideration. So the Knights of Columbus, when they brought this motion to decide if Mr. Gobernan can actually bring a court case, the motion is called the stave proceedings. They said, let's put a pause on the court case. Let's, this should be in front of an arbitrator. The motion's decision was that the stay is, is refused. So court case continues. This does not have to go before an arbitrator. Of course, Knights of Columbus appealed. This went in front of a court of appeal judge who upheld the initial decision. They agreed with the motion judge and said, yeah, no, we, we do think that the lack of consideration issue is valid. Mr. Goberden was not given anything extra in exchange for the arbitration provision that you're trying to enforce. So it doesn't matter that it's in there. And for that reason, he's allowed to bring a court case. There's nothing preventing him from doing so. With regards to that second argument that, you know, the Knights of Columbus, they weren't happy that the uh, motion judge had said Mr. Gobernan was an employee, not an independent contractor. The Court of Appeals said, well, it's still a live issue. He doesn't win his case. He's still bringing uh, his case before the court, of, uh, the court to decide if he gets wrongful dismissal damages. So you can make your argument there. So they found that it was still a live issue. There's no final determination on whether he's an employee or a contractor. The important thing in this case is just that contract two and contract three did not have valid consideration. So we can't enforce the arbitration provision. It doesn't matter. Um, the Knights of Columbus tried to make arguments like, well, we added other provisions that gave him a benefit. They were saying that originally the governing law said that, you know, the law of Connecticut applied. They changed that to Ontario. And the court said none of these extra changes actually gave him a right or a benefit. It wasn't sufficient to count as consideration. So unfortunate decision. The most important thing to remember from this is that if you want to have a valid contract, you need to have all three elements. You need to have consideration. Otherwise, it's not worth uh, the paper that it's written on. It's not a contract. It's not enforceable. It's not binding. The easiest thing to do in this case is that had the Knights of Columbus given him something extra, a raise, a, a signing bonus, some additional extra thing, then they would have been able to enforce contract two, contract three. Without that, there's just court's hands are tied, no consideration, no contract, easy fix. Unfortunately, didn't happen in this case. So interesting. I did not know that. So again, I think you said it very clearly, but I'll just reiterate in contract number two, contract number three, there needed to be a bonus, an increase in compensation, something material. And because that wasn't there, their entire case effectively fell apart and uh, and was uh, rejected by the courts uh, based on such a small item really in the end, right, Zoriana? That's exactly it. And that's why it's so devastating. It's like this this could have been avoided, you know, had they spoken to an employment lawyer who would have said, okay, great, we can update his contract but you need to have this. Yeah, great, 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 great. Well, so well presented. And each of those cases were so informative and taught us a, taught me at least as a, as a layman, uh, something new in terms of employment law. So wonderful job. Uh, we're gonna now uh, turn, we're a little bit into overtime, but we've got some time for questions for sure. Um, Paula has been helping uh, sift through them in the background. I've been keeping an eye on them. So I'm gonna, uh, I'm gonna pick out a couple of these. And um, yeah, I think this one, Paul, I'll go to you and I'll read it for you as I put it on screen here. It relates to your the case that you spoke to, number two, Paul. 
um, I think you've got an answer for this. Are we saying that every time an employee gets a promotion with more responsibilities, we need to do a new employment agreement? What say you, Paul? Yeah, that would definitely be the best practice. Okay. Is when someone's promoted, you put a new employment contract in place. Now, if you have one of those provisions that, that I referenced earlier that says it doesn't matter what position this person is in at the time of termination, this termination clause will apply, then you'll still potentially have some protection if, if they're promoted. But you, the best practice is to put a new contract in place because when they're promoted, that's your opportunity to fix any other problems that may have arisen in the intervening period of time due to changed case law, changed employment standards, et cetera. Yeah, I, and I get your point there, right, Paul? So not only because the person's changing roles, but because you know the, 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 the period uh, after which they're promoted might have been years, so there might be, need to be other language changes in the contract, not even, not even related to the promotion, but just clean up other, uh, other language. Is that right, Paul? Yes, exactly. Like, for example, recently, uh, the, the, the provisions that are in many employment contracts that, out there, uh, the way they were written to limit uh, entitlements to employment standards minimums upon termination, there was a court of appeal case uh, a couple of years ago that basically said none of those are enforceable anymore. And that, that meant there's all these employees who are entitled to common law instead of employment standards. But if you had one of those employees being promoted, they're getting a higher job title, a raise or some increased compensation package, that's your opportunity to fix that termination clause to make the end result be what, what you're expecting based on, on the way the law had evolved. Okay, that's great. So Ariana, we've got one uh, related to question uh, number, uh, case number three, pardon me. Uh, and the question is just a point of clarification, I, I think. Um, in the Knights of Columbus case, they would then need to revise all of their field agent contracts. Uh, would you agree with that? So if they had renewed other field agents and uh, contracts and not put consideration, I mean, they should have immediately after this negative ruling against them, fixed the other contracts. Well, and I hope they did, but in this case, all that matters is the contract between Goberdan and Knights of Columbus. So whether or not they amended other contracts doesn't really matter to his situation, but what a great opportunity to have all of them amended at this case. Anytime you want to update or change a contract where the employee is already working there or the contractor is already uh, working, have that extra consideration, have those changes made done properly. You can do it at any point, but to Paul's point, you know, if you have a promotion anyways, where they're getting a raise, there's changes make happening anyhow, that's the best opportunity to do so. You don't have to think then, okay, what's the consideration that I'm giving them? In that case, the raise is sufficient to bind the additional changes. Excellent. And I think you'll say yes to this one, uh, Zoriana, but we'll, we'll stick with you in that last case. We have a, uh, this is from Margarita asking, we have the practice of signing a new contract in March of every year, we include a salary raise and make it conditional upon signing the contract. Is that enough to meet consideration? Yeah, that's great. And that's yes. honestly a great practice to have where, you know, as soon as you have that raise, you can say, here's this new contract, you can add the new position. So we don't have a situation like case number two, uh, talk about the change duties and so forth mention that there's a raise 
And then if they don't sign it, they don't get the raise. That's great. And okay. that actually raises the consideration that you need. Okay. Listen, I think we got time for one more question. Uh, there was a long one here that spoke to people who are, and I'm not trying to confuse the issue. So if I'm taking us on a tangent to say, like, that's a tangent, forget it. Uh, people asking about work from home. So, you know, is that is that pertinent? In, or maybe I'll ask that in a different question. Um, should work for, from home be taken into consideration when employers are drafting employ, employ, employee contracts? Um, you want to take a shot at that, Paul? Yeah, they they definitely should be taken into consideration. Like the location of work is something that should be addressed addressed in your employment contracts. Um, any special uh, rules that apply when somebody's working at home should be addressed in your employment contracts, or your employment contract in some cases could reference a policy that that will apply to them, and and that would be sufficient. But um, and and for example, if if an employer wants to have flexibility in terms of whether they could say, hey, employees, uh, we want you to come back into the office or we want you to be in the office at certain times, then that's something that should be in the employment contract. Because if you if you enter into a contract that says you're you're a remote worker working from home and then then you go and to, to unilaterally change that, then that would be a fundamental change which could amount to a termination or constructive dismissal. Uh, and, and to, to relay it back to like the substratum concept that we discussed today, what you might have seen over the past few years is people who always worked in the office and their job has evolved into working remotely. Uh, and, and the issue that comes up a lot is, well, can I make them come back now? Well, it, it depends. Like it's, that's not a simple answer. Some, for some employers, it would be yes. For some employers, no, it would depend on on how that change was implemented and, and how it evolved, et cetera. I'm going to ask you, we're way into overtime. I apologize, Paul, but I'm really intrigued by what you said. So um, let's say a company has uh, a bunch of employees who have been working there for, let's say, longer than five years. I say five years because it's before the pandemic. In the pandemic, you know, uh, health crisis, people need to work from home. Should a company literally consider revising and and now let's say the company's uh, sorry I should add this part let's say the company's uh, workforce is now in a hybrid type situation which I think is we're seeing a lot in Ottawa Paul should that company actually consider redoing all the contracts that for example are pre-pandemic just to introduce um, location clauses again I think the answer to that is it. it it's more of a, it depends because you'd have to gather all of the facts about the circumstances applicable to that employer and, and their employees, but uh, perhaps uh, entering into new employment contracts would be something uh, that is recommended if it's going to become something, something permanent. If okay. it's, if it's, you know, it's certainly that that would be the case. Changed policies is definitely something that that should be happening if your workforce is 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 going to be working from home uh, most of the time, if if not all of the time. Okay. But employers who are who are in that situation with, well, now everybody's working from home. What do we do? I mean, it might be they're working from home and that's fine with us. What do we do? Well, you know, think about that and consider it. There might be some things to do. You might be an employer who's everybody is working at home, but that doesn't work for our business. Can I bring them all back in? 
Well, that's, that's another, you know, set of advice in terms of whether the way you rolled it out allows you to roll it back simply or not. Uh, on top of the, the more practical, how will your workforce react, which is not purely legal, but yes, it, yeah. it's all related. Yeah. Well, I think there should be an instinctual reaction from employers if anything is changing or if they've got these issues uh, to, to seek out expert advice. Uh, listen, Paul, we're going to move into our final phase and you're going to provide our viewers. Thank you for sticking with us, by the way, some some key takeaways and then we'll uh, we'll wrap this live broadcast. Uh, so go ahead. Uh, I'll take it away. Okay, so I mean, three key takeaways then would be the first, there is value in a carefully crafted contract. Uh, I think you could take that from the first case uh, that Zoriana discussed. Um, that was a term contract that didn't have an early termination provision, and it didn't have a provision that required uh, the contractor to mitigate if it was terminated early. So that wasn't very carefully crafted. It, it could have Clauses could have been included that would have protected the the company uh, much more so than what they ended up with, and it would have been quite easy to include those. Uh, the The second uh, key takeaway to take uh, from today would be even carefully crafted contracts should be reviewed regularly, and this comes from the case that I discussed. They should re be reviewed regularly when there are circumstances change, like things that, that have changed in the employment relationship or just the duties of the employee, that, that, should, that should trigger a, hey, let's review, should we change something here? Is there, is there an opportunity to do that? Do we need to make a change to protect ourselves? And, and the other circumstance where, where this comes out, not from a case that we discussed today necessarily, but there, there are sometimes uh, legal changes that make a term in a contract no longer enforceable the way that it was when it was first implemented. Um, so when those changes occur, a review of the contracts and a decision as to whether whether you need to update them should definitely be on an employer's checklist. Um, and then the final takeaway from the last case that, that Zoriana spoke about is don't forget consideration. And, and I mean, th this comes up regularly in what we do. It's sort of one of the key things. And and so Zoriana, the case Zoriana spoke about was sort of during a relationship, getting someone to sign another contract doesn't necessarily mean that it's enforceable. You need to provide additional consideration and an analysis should be, uh, that has to be thought about. What are you going to give them a value for them signing this contract? The the other way that it, that it has always come up uh, throughout my career is and I still see employers making the, this mistake is if you have employees sign an employment contract, get them to, to review it and sign it before they start working for you. Because if they walk through the door and start working for a little while and then you get them to sign it, well, there's no consideration for that because they were already working for you. Um, and so those are the three, the three simple key takeaways from, from today. I've heard that one before too. Always sign the employment law before the new employee starts. Okay, so I've learned a lot here. I've learned that case law is forever changing employment law. Uh, number two, you've got to have a termination clause. Number three, if people are changing jobs, consider a new contract. And Zoriana uh, taught me that consideration when you're renewing a contract, you need consideration. If you don't have consideration, it's not worth the paper it's uh, written on. So that's all great. Now, 
just because I understand these simple things doesn't mean people shouldn't talk to an appointment law. So we're going to bring your contact information uh, uh, information on screen. So we'll do that again. Uh, please contact an expert if you've got questions on this. You can see Paul Paul's uh, phone number, email, same with Soriana. Listen, Paul and Soriana, you've done a great job. Thank you very much uh, for participating today. I learned a lot. I'm sure many people uh, in the audience learned a lot. And we look forward to more employment and labor law uh, presentations from Eamon Harden. You do such a great job. Thank you for so much for being with us today. Thank Thanks you so much us. for having us. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. Uh, we're going to wrap up here. I want to remind uh, you all that uh, this is a live broadcast, but once we wrap up this live broadcast, then it is available in a uh, play on demand. So if you're on YouTube, bingo, it becomes a, uh, a replay link. If you're on uh, LinkedIn, uh, ditto. So I'd encourage you, if there are other people in your organization that need to hear the information and learn about the information we presented today, please share that link. If you uh, registered, one of the benefits of registering for these is we will send you the link. Uh, so then you can send it to your colleagues so you don't have to go hunting for it. Uh, that's all the time we have for today. On behalf of all my colleagues uh, at Ottawa Business Journal, I want to thank you for tuning in. There'll be some more, once again, good, great live broadcast coming up this fall. And uh, since you're with us, especially if you're on YouTube, what I ask is that you uh, like the video and click the red subscribe button. And then there's a little bell icon. If you click the bell icon, there you can see it right there on, on screen. You got a notification when we're live or when we post a new video. So once again, thank you so much. And thanks to our friends at Eamon Harnden for doing such a great day. Hope to see you uh, real soon. Bye-bye, everyone.